I don't know to what extent being blind has shaped who I am, but it would be stupid to say it hasn't shaped me. Mm. I can't quantify it, but it's definitely the case that being blind has made me think and act and function in different ways than I otherwise would have chosen. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, Tim. I've had a coffee. I've got a bottle of water. I'm half wide. It's awesome. (laughs) That is good. You know, it's been really, really hot in these past few days. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your blindness. And I guess, you know, that kind of brings up questions of how do you cope with things like heat? and Yeah, having to be the person that has to walk everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like yesterday the big choice was how desperately do I want lunch? (laughs) What do I desperately want for lunch? Hey, there's a cafe 300 meters from home that has good things. That is as far as I intend to go in 46 degree heat because it's a straight walk and there's some trees and it's like, this is sort of okay. Mm. How about other, let's say, general difficulties? I can't imagine that, you know, say cutting your nails or trimming your beard or you don't have a beard. How do you shave? Ah, well, the shaving bit's easy. Electric razors, no problems. Okay, that's good. And I just got an awesome new one. Oh, so good. So any blokes out there who need a new electric shaver, go buy a Braun Series 7. They're freaking awesome. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm sure. <laughs> and I, I'm not being paid by Braun, so no. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all about the feel for you, I suppose. So yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that constantly pisses me off with barbers, excluding the lady that was cutting my hair last year, Georgie, is no one gets my sideburns even. Mm. For frick's sake, you've got eyes. Get it right. That's so interesting. Now, I know that potentially, you know, John and Dan and Ash from Slick Lobster are listening and Ash did my sideburns for me this week and he didn't get them even. But that's okay because no sighted person but Georgie does. (laughs) And now she's gone off to be a tour guide. Wow. So my question is, why when sighted people can see both sides simultaneously... Can't they get them even? Does it have to do... Because, you know, for instance, I have maybe a weird-shaped head, but my, That, of my, course, is the answer. Not, that yeah. They've matched it probably to my ears yes. or to my skull or something. But then I get home and my wife goes, David, your sideburns aren't even. And I go, <laughs> I know they're not, and I'll fix them when they grow back a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if she can see it, there must really be a difference. Yes. So... I mean, do you struggle often with people that are vision focused? What I realize is is eyesight seems to be so easy for people. Mm. It seems to be such a dominant sense. It provides a flood of information so quickly and it does something very artificial. Mm. Eyes focus on one thing. So it makes people believe the one thing they're focused on is the center of the world. Whereas the strange thing about hearing, touch, smell, taste... They're all ambient senses. Mm. You hear everything, you taste everything, you smell everything. If you put your hand down on a surface, like, you know, got my hand now on the carpet that's on the table to absorb sound, and it feels pretty yucky. <laughs> it's clearly synthetic. It's, mm. it's, it's looped. I'm feeling the joint here between two pieces. You know, as, as the texture goes, it's pretty much in the blah category. <laughs> but the point is, it's not just under my hand, it's under my forearm. Mm. The only place it's not touching my arm is where my bracelet is touching it and my watch band is touching it. Mm. So, whereas you might look down at the carpet on the table in a millisecond and go, you know, what's the colour? Oh, it's loop. I'm getting all this constant sensory information just from having my arms lying on it. 
which is not distracting. But if I let my brain wander off to it, mm. it's entertaining enough that I just made two sentences out of the daggy piece of carpet on the table. That's true. Do you find people expect you to have like superhuman hearing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> people, and it's a lovely thing because what people want to believe is if something physically doesn't work, mm. then clearly the adaptation will make you, you know, superior yeah. in some other way. It's like, no. Yeah. What changes, and it's very interesting with hearing, um, the visual cortex in the brain you could almost think about as a pile of RAM. Mm. It's just sitting there. And normally, you know, eyesight would take it up and, you know, the brain would be so busy working out what eyes are seeing. Whereas what they found in brain scans on blind people is the visual cortex ends up being shared to all the bits of the brain. So your hearing's no better, your smell's no better, your sense of taste is no better, your sense of touch is no better, your ability to navigate is no better, but you've suddenly got access to all this free RAM. Mm. And they don't know how the brain rewires other than it's a good example of neuroplasticity. Yeah, it certainly kind of feeds into the super superhuman <laughs> other senses. But yeah, yeah, like if anything's probably superhuman and you know, it, it's an interesting thing. My yoga teacher was asking me about it this morning. You know, young blood said, Okay, you have so many processes to do day to day things. How does your memory work? Mm. If I ask you about a book, how do you remember who wrote it? And I go, uh <laughs> that's part of the problem. What I'm very aware of is some things I must have just adapted into as a very little child audience. Probably important to set up what my site was, what it's done, how it's got there, and then I'll go back to this. When I was born, I probably had, they think, about 5% vision, which was enough for colour, shapes. It was enough to learn to ride a push bike really slowly and only crash into the really small things. Mm, mm. <laughs> but they came up with a wonderful idea in special education primary school for the blind that I had just enough sight to stay in the sighted world and use massive magnification and closed-circuit television to read print, mm. which meant I read incredibly slowly. Mm. That caused massive eye strain headaches, massive sore necks. By the end of year 12... I was kind of used to permanent neck pain, permanent eye strain headaches, and it trashed the 5% vision I had. Mm. So I have a memory of sight, but don't have sight you know, anymore. Occasionally there'll be a light thing or a dark thing, or I'll walk from a dark space into a light space, and my eyes will register, bloody hell, that's bright, and I'll do a great vampire imitation and hide behind my hat or my hands. <laughs> and, you know, Even do a cool vampire hiss just to make the point. Whatever that was sucked. <laughs> but what this means is... At some level, the adaptation to being blind was going on from the time I was tiny. And it was a constant sort of accidental just-have-to adaptation. So I have no idea how the black box of my memory works. Mm. I know how I organize my world so I can find everything. That's deliberate process. And I think the tipping point from black box it just adapted to deliberate process was probably when early in primary school I started to use learn to use a white cane because that said there's a process for getting around safely. So even though I might not have been old enough to go, I'm going to apply processes to make life doable and so I can get more done and be more successful, mm. somehow that little seed stuck that black box isn't good enough because if you don't know how you did it, how can you trust it works? Mm. 
needed to change to I've got a process for when I walk in at home and in beside the front door is my wine rack and on the corner of my wine rack goes my hat. Beside my hat to the left go my sunglasses. To the left of my sunglasses goes my wallet. Behind my wallet go my keys. Behind my keys goes my coin pouch. To the left of my wallet goes my watch. And those things only live in those spots. Mm. It is non-negotiable. And anyone who moves those things will be glared at in a way that says you are going to die. Because <laughs> if I have to find, if I have to waste 10 minutes to find my hat, glasses, wallet, keys, my ability to cope with being blind is going to diminish very quickly mm. and my rage levels are going to ramp up very, very quickly. I want to get onto the emotional weight of dealing with with blindness a little bit later. But in regards to memory, you know, it seems from talking to you in these podcasts that you have amazing recall of information. And I'm wondering, and it'd be difficult to quantify, but I'm wondering whether it has anything to do with the information that you're consuming, whether less of it is junk in the way that some people we are focusing on seeing all the time and what we're taking in in terms of short-term memory at least. I do think there's something useless. to that. Um, I think the fact that you know, everything but sight is ambient senses mm. means you can't possibly take it all in and use it. You're always sifting. Mm. So my feeling is that initially there was a black box decision somewhere in my brain to sift very effectively mm. and only retain what seemed valuable but later came processes for going, okay, this is downtime. You don't have to remember anything. This is think time. You now have to remember. Um, it was fascinating when all the technology I use now came along. You know, computers that can talk to me, they came first. Phones that can talk to me came a lot later. Mm. But it would have been late 1997 when I started training to use the screen reading software I use, which is called JAWS, you know, which stands for Job Access with Speech, mm. uh, which has a cool shark logo which is unfortunate that I can't see it because I love the idea of a cool shark logo <laughs> for my software. But what really changed when JAWS came along and screen reading software came along is also optical character recognition software came along. Mm. And with OCR software, I could lay a book on a scanner, scan one page at a time, you know, and processing each page took about a minute. So that was 60 pages an hour. Yeah, But it meant in three or four hours, I could scan a whole book the computer could transform it, dump it in a Word document, and then the screen reader could read it to me. And all right, there'd be scanning errors. You know, 1997, 98, best case scenario was 95% accuracy. Wow. Okay. So it was, it, you know, it was shit compared to now. Yeah, yeah. But for the first time ever, I could get any book I wanted and didn't have to find someone to read it to me. Mm. Um, it would make such a monumental difference, like the amount of effort that you would go to to do that seems extreme perhaps for people that take their site for granted but this is the thing of process process and discipline Mm. you start the day by scanning it initially because you're excited to read it then what you learn later is scanning is a brain dead job Mm. you should do it when you're zoned out you should do it when you've already done something constructive so i started by scanning in the mornings i learned later to scan late in the afternoons or at night Mm. because it didn't take any thinking. You just crank the stereo up on something cool and kept turning pages and scanning books in. Uh, What happened was fascinating with my memory is for the first time ever, I was putting more information in my head 
than I had before. And I was sitting, I can't remember this anymore. Mm. And my body developed a weird tell of when I was pushing my memory too far. Really? And it's that I will go to pick up a dessert spoon and I can't remember how. <laughs> it's my trigger for I've hit intellectual, mental, memory overload. If I've pushed my brain too hard, I can't remember how to pick up a dessert spoon using three fingers. I have to go back to baby grip by grabbing it in my fist. That is absolutely fascinating that you've identified something like that. That's crazy. It's very strange. The first time it happened, I knew I was tired. Mm. I was working on my honors thesis. And I went out and I want, I want canned peaches and ice cream. Mm. So I got my canned peaches, I got my ice cream, was fine with ice cream scoop, went to stick my dessert spoon, well, went to pick my dessert spoon up mm. and couldn't think how to hold it to get food out of the bowl. Wow. <laughs> Which so was strange. initially like, holy shit, have I had a micro stroke <laughs> and just lost some part of my brain? Okay, I'll just use baby grip. And a minute later, I could go, oh, yeah, you hold three fingers this way. But what I realized was each time I would try and remember everything I'd read. So what I've learned now with audiobooks, with scanning books, with PDFs, with Kindle, all being accessible, mm. is now all I've got to remember is the key themes, the name of the book, not even the author. Yeah. And I can go and read it again. Now, I still remember infinitely more, I think, than most people. Again, people keep telling me I do. <laughs> but the consensus there is probably very telling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, you can't go with what your own head says because you've only got your own evidence. <laughs> but again, you lot all seem to go, how do you remember all this weird stuff? It's a combinatorial ontology. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, all the pieces fit together to make a world. Mm. Yeah. What this means is I think maybe I've imposed some sort of memory system on the black box to at least the point where I go now, brain, it's okay. You've only got to remember the book title and five or six key concepts or points from the book. The details we can go back. And what I love now that so many good authors or other people will do a YouTube video is all I need to remember now the title of the YouTube video that has the summary of the book. Mm. And that that's often enough. If I can go back to the summary, I'll remember all the freaky details. So in the main, when I was teaching you guys last semester, I would go back and watch the videos before class, which would then trigger all my weird memories of all the specifics of the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to go about it. It's that interesting idea. Have you ever read about the idea of a memory palace? No. Okay. It's how in a pre-literate world people remembered huge amounts of stuff. Mm. And what you do is you visualize a bit of information connected to something in a representation of a place. Mm. So a favorite building, a favorite cathedral, a favorite library. And each idea could be hooked to a book or a, a painting or a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. So you use them to trigger, to pull the drawer out with the memory in them. I've tried to deliberately develop a memory palace because it works brilliantly. Like all the world memory champions use memory palaces to remember all the weird stuff they remember. Mm -hmm. Doesn't work for me because it's too visual. Mm. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So some things obviously can work for most people who are sighted because there's enough, enough people have done it to prove it works and it works reliably and it's been honed to work well visually, which suggests to me that it must be using the visual cortex to connect to other bits of the brain. Mm. In my case, I've got the black box plus the process now of how I load things in the black box. Mm. And it, it works and it's got a little bit of a system on top, but is largely a mystery to me how I remember stuff. 
So in regard to, say, a concept like the memory palace, which you're saying is, let's say, biased towards sighted people, do you find that there's enough there are enough resources or uh, considerations for blind or uh, visually impaired people in in our society, specifically Australia? Let's say, I take a very broad view on this that there are blind people, and then there are deaf people, and then there are people in wheelchairs, and then there are people using walking frames, mm. and then there are people with a multitude of other disabilities, and I want to live in a society that does enough so people from all of these groups can engage. So could more be done for blind people in terms of accessibility? Yes. But if more was done, might it be at the expense of meeting basic standards for deaf people or people in wheelchairs? I want a compromise where when I'm wandering around with my cane, I might hear someone rolling along in a wheelchair Mm. because they know they can get in the same building and use the environment and we'll be using it in different ways and to make something accessible in different ways. So to make a speaking elevator so I know what floor I'm on, Mm. to make a ramp up to the foyer level of a building so a person in a wheelchair can get in the elevator, to put the buttons in the elevator at a height where they can reach. I want a compromise where both they and I can equally use the environment, Mm. which means it's only ever going to be barely enough for each group, even at its best, but it will include more groups. And the more people with physical disabilities that are out in the world, the more it will become normal that, well, physical disability just is. First and foremost, people are people. And it's an interesting example that in a lot of the literature on blindness, visual impairment, they talk about the VIP, the visually impaired person. Mm -hmm. And initially I didn't mind this phrase. I thought, well, that's all right. I could work with that. And gradually over time it pissed me off. Mm. I went, well, why does it piss me off? Mm. I thought, it's assuming that visual impairment defines the person. Mm. And I would prefer it was PVI, person with a visual impairment. Mm. Like someone in a wheelchair, maybe it would be PPI, person with a physical impairment. Mm. Because first and foremost, people with a physical impairment are people first who are trying to deal with their physical impairment and be in a world and be seen first and foremost as people Mm. and only secondarily as people with a disability. Now, I don't even want to speculate on intellectual impairments and intellectual disabilities. It's a world I have no experience of. I don't have any insight into how those Mm. people deal, even in terms of the blind community. It's very important to make the point. The only thing that makes it a community is we've all got some level of visual impairment. Mm. But... There can be people like me who had some sight, lost it. There can be people who had full sight, lost it. There can be people who started totally blind. Our needs, wants, coping strategies, balance between being comfortable, being angry, coping, not coping, are all so diverse that even to try and say, we've done something for accessibility for the blind community. Mm. Really? You can only define that in general terms, so don't try and define it in specific terms. It's too hard to do a lot for everyone. You need to do a little bit for everyone. That means more people can be engaged as people, so people see each other as people. Mm. It's a whole separate discussion, and I'm weighing up whether to bring it up or not, but I think perhaps some of our listeners might even be wondering this. In, In terms of 
disability. Is that a word that you're okay with? We think we should continue to use it kind of, I've heard the argument that it has too much negativity within the, like in the meaning of the word, let's say disability. I personally don't have any problem with it Mm. because I'm disabled. My eyes don't work. So to me, I see an absolute truth in that word Mm. if it is understood as physical disability. Mm. Whereas I think the problem can be in what can cause frustration and rage for disabled people, for physically disabled people, Mm. I'll clarify that further, is when there is assumptions that along with physical disability Mm. goes intellectual disability, intellectual impairment. I think that's something this podcast uh, really goes against, let's say. It it shows, it it is an example of the fact that it makes absolutely no difference to your intellectual capability. No, if anything, it's the reason I've pushed my brain so hard. Otherwise, I would have done things that pushed my eyes. Mm. I would have done things where my eyes were necessary to make them happen. Instead, I have to work around my eyes which means immaterial of how good my brain was from day one. Mm. Brain got told to switch on and shut up and get organized. Mm. And brain couldn't complain. Brain, I'm tired. Well, (laughs) I don't care. Do it. Mm. Uh, So to me, as long as disability is not thrown around as an all-encompassing term, Mm. if people go, what's the context we're talking about? We're talking about physical disability. So maybe people would be more comfortable and again, I can't speak for the blind community or any other disabled community, but a compromise might be said to we when we're talking about physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. Something physically doesn't work. Mm. There is no impairment to the intellect. The intellect is working to work around the physical impairment. Mm. And if people have a problem with that, personal position is, suck it up, princess. There's bigger shit to get on with <laughs> than being upset about a word. Mm. Mm. I haven't got time to be upset about a word. I'm going to get upset about losing my keys and beat myself up going, you shithead, why did you lose your keys? (laughs) Mm. You now know you are going to waste 10 minutes of your life finding them. Why didn't you just put them between your wallet and your coin pouch Mm. where they belong? Well, this is the thing. It's somewhat loaded and feel free to answer in any way you like because it's somewhat sensitive. But do you ever find yourself upset by what you could be achieving without the challenges you face being blind? Uh, For me, the frustration that goes with being blind is constant. Mm. Now, there are people who make peace with it brilliantly. Um, You know, Mike Malassi in the US who set up the How to Be Blind podcast Mm -hmm. was in Afghanistan as a combat air controller when the guy in front of him trod on an IED. Mm. And that was the end of Mike's eyes instantly. And Mike's talked about it in podcasts and he went, well, okay, that's what I'd wanted, but I'm a dad with little kids. The rest of me still works just fine. Mm-hmm. I'll adapt. And he's this amazing person who seems to have made peace with his life transforming radically. Mm. Uh, I will still periodically wake up in the morning, open my eyes. There's darkness. I can hear birds, which means there's sunlight and just go, fuck. <laughs> eyes don't work. Mm. This is annoying. Mm. And I think some things must just be deep in your personality, how much you're going to cope or how much you're going to feel. I can't think of a better word than feel. Imagine Mm. what you could have done otherwise. So I I know that 
for me there is a real danger of in a sense fixating on what I can't do and getting angry because of it rather than valuing what I can do. Mm. Well, I, I guess this leads on from that is I think for me, and this is coming from a complete outside perspective and has no weight whatsoever, but I would like to imagine that the success that you've had in so many areas and the happiness that you've found with, say, your relationships and your career and some of the things, the, the places you've ended up are perhaps a result of the opportunities that you've had being blind, let's say. so. It's yeah, kind of... it caused a kickoff mm. that made the dominoes fall in a different direction. Yeah, And this is the problem of the brain being able to go, what if? And if you've trained your brain for decades to always be sharp and busy, it has more what if time. Mm. Um, you know, David Goggins has written about this really well. You know, everyone's got difficult things in their life and everyone can resent the difficulties. Mm. But don't let the resentment undo other things resentment has to be neutralized and turned into fuel so to me if i have a moment of going bloody hell all i really wanted was to have joined the army and tried to get through sas selection mm -hmm. which is what i would have tried to do now very few people get through the likelihood of making it you know low because it's low for everyone mm. but would have i ever ended up at special operations command training australia's elite soldiers to think and plan differently if I hadn't been blind. Now, I remember an email from a, a friend in America who was a SEAL, now dead, um, and we'd been talking about something and he, he wrote to me, he said, David, you know, I'm glad you're blind. Mm. And I remember thinking, count to ten. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of weird. Yeah. But from, from John, I'm going to think this through very carefully and ask him why. And he wrote back, he went, well, if you'd been sighted, the likelihood is, you know, and he believed, I would have ended up becoming a shooter like him mm -hmm. in terrible places, suffering extreme trauma and spending the rest of the life putting myself back together like he and so many of his friends had mm. instead of being the person that can help them to think differently, mm. being the person that can help them to think about different things. And I thought, well, that is the hugest compliment. Mm. And on the days where I am frustrated by what I can't do, or on the verge of resenting the opportunities that aren't available or resenting the hard work to get around being blind, mm. I find thinking of those few emails very helpful to go, look, David, stop being an idiot. Mm. Focus on what you do, not what you can't do, because most people are impressed with what you can do and it's only that you hold yourself to such a high standard <laughs> that you're not impressed. <laughs> so that Jordan Peterson thing of, you know, look after yourself like you would look after someone else you're responsible for yeah. for me that one is hugely important mm. because you know as i've said to you lot as students before i'm hard on you lot to perform try living in my head mm. that's right yeah well, you, know, you guys get the kind version <laughs> well you know i think we're all grateful for the fact that you're a, a teacher as well so i mean that's another thing to consider just for and at the university level as well as the success you found in defense and security yeah and this is the thing at some level once i worked out right got to develop processes to succeed mm. at a certain point you realize you've done enough for yourself there's a risk now of becoming self-absorbed mm. so actually empowering other people helping people to do what they want to grow 
to evolve is the best way to stay focused on what you are achieving rather than what you think you could have achieved. Mm. So teaching for me is one of the best grounders to make sure that I stay in the moment, which is you know, normally positive outcomes, even if there's more work to get there. Well, there's more work to get there. It's mm. non-negotiable. Mm. Shrug. And something I've thought more and more of the years going on, I, I spend time doing practical boring shit, mm-hmm. like putting my colour detector on my T-shirts and shirts to work out what colour I want for the day. Mm. You know, to make sure that my shoes are matching colour when I've been a dum-dum <laughs> and bought two pairs the same in different colours. Because, <laughs> you know, if a sighted person goes out in the world with mismatched shoes, that's eccentric. If I do it, it's just viewed as sad. <laughs> so, you know, wasting time to check the colour of my socks, shoes and shirt. Boring. Mm. But it, maybe it's only boring to me because so many years of training to think so fast and you know, sounds a bit egotistical, but to think so effectively mm. means the thinking happens quick for me. So what would I do if I didn't spend time doing boring shit, like working out the colour of my shirt? Is there any more energy in my day for thinking? I think probably not. So maybe in a roundabout way, the practical things slow me down to a pace where I'm less likely to be impatient and obnoxious with people. Mm. You know, um, David Blunkett's biography yeah he wrote it himself david blunkett was home affairs minister something like home affairs anyway Mm. in in tony blair's government in the uk and david blunkett is totally blind and always has been Mm. and i remember a great interview with him where he was talking about when his sons started at either oxford or cambridge or maybe had one at each and he was just riding them hard about get the work done, always be prepared, always be this, always be this. And one of his sons turned around and said, Dad, shush, we're sighted. We can jog to the lecture if we're running late. We can peek over our friend's shoulder and look at their notes if we don't know what's going on and we have to catch up. We're organised enough. We don't need to be as organised as you. And again, that's something I try and hold in my head, mm. that my level of organisation to function in a sighted world is infinitely higher than you or any other side of person needs. Mm. You need some organisation. I need more organisation. I can try and teach all of you the importance of processes to make sure you get things done with minimum energy, maximum effectiveness. But that doesn't mean you need my level of process. Mm. You just need a level more than you've currently got. (laughs) On the whole... For, for many, you are inspirational. And so talking about those processes and explaining perhaps why you think effectively, I don't think that's egotistical. I think it just sets an example that people will look up to and aspire to perhaps. And, and same with the organizational thing. is like Even if you know the impact is that people end up 10% more organize, organized as a result of you sharing the, the wisdom that you have about being organized, it's an improvement. It's worth it. Yeah, it's simply, it's that old thing, don't tell people, show them and then explain it. Yeah. And there's a difference between telling and explaining. When you tell people something, it's like, I'm telling you to get your act together. Yeah. When you show them what organized looks like and explain how you do it, well, if they want to take it up, that's their question. So I'm very much a show what it looks like, explain how to do it, but it's totally up to people Mm. So I don't know if if I'm inspiring at any level and that's something that only other people can say, Mm. 
I hope it's in a way of going, here's an example that you can run with if you want, but you don't feel badgered into it. Mm. Mm. I'd say that. I'd say that's accurate. Yeah, because I hate being badgered into things. Because one thing I'm implicitly aware of is other people don't know what's good for me. (laughs) So how can I know what's good for other people? I can know that discipline and process tend to be beneficial to the vast majority of people. Mm. And that's just a bit more discipline and process. Well, do you have many examples of people trying to tell you what is good for you and being clearly wrong? Um, it, it's. I'll go with a practical example first. <laughs> sure. I was crossing North Terrace one day and someone just walks up behind me, grabs me by the arm and yanks me sideways. Mm. No talking, no interacting. Mm. My first thought was, I am going to headbutt this prick's nose into their brain. Yeah, that's scary. You don't know what, what their the, intentions yeah, are. What the fuck? <laughs> Now we get the other side, turns out that there'd been minor sort of road work on the footpath. Well, footpath work, I suppose we'd call that. The guy goes, oh, are you going to say thanks? And I go, what? For scaring the hell out of me, dragging me sideways, not interacting, not giving me any agency. Mm. Dream on. Mm. Anyway, he was taken aback. And thankfully I didn't head Buddy's nose into his brain. <laughs> Don't really want to do jail time. <laughs> so it's... It's not so pe- much people think they know what I should do in big terms. Mm. A big thing from my perspective as a blind person is if you want to come and offer me some assistance because the environment is confusing or there's work going on the road or the footpath or there's a bloody stupid obstacle at head height, come up, say, hi, there's a dangerous obstacle. Would you like some help? Don't take my agency away. Mm. I think that's the biggest lesson yeah, you know, if audience, if you can remember one thing from today, it will make such a difference for people with physical disabilities. If you think maybe they need some help, go up and say hi. Uh, do you need a hand with this? In the case of a blind person, explain what the this is, because we probably don't know it's there. Mm. But don't steal people's agency, otherwise you're making the predominant thing they are visually impaired not Mm, a person mm, mm, mm. so in the main if i have a problem with what people think oh david you should do this or david you should do this it's because they're defining that from their perception of me first and foremost being blind not from being a person who has to deal with being blind so would you say there's like a bit of yeah, frustration, I guess, toward people who uh, look after you too much, or as or treat you as if you're not an in, like independent um, agent. If someone's willing to come and mm. talk to me rather mm. than grab my arm and drag me sideways, sure, I'm more than happy to spend five minutes changing their perception, sure, to get them to realise the value of letting people have their agency because mm. they like theirs, and doing that in the gentlest, most roundabout way because the fact they offered help is awesome. Mm. You know, don't ever not offer a blind person help, but go up and say, hi, uh, there's an obstacle in front of you. Are you aware of it or would you like some help? Mm. Bang. Leave their agents intact and give them the chance to say what help they need or want. That way they walk away going, okay, I accepted help because it made life easier, but I'm not diminished by accepting help. Mm. You know, part of a physical disability, at least in my experience, is you have to make peace every day with the sense of relative to everyone around you, something's missing, something's been diminished. Mm. And it's a physical thing. Now, physical things have consequences. 
But if someone then diminishes your sense of agency, identity, intellect, that's a bigger, more difficult thing to swallow. Mm. And that's where a different level of anger and frustration comes from. And you don't want to be angry and frustrated at people who are helping you. No. So there's a massive risk of internalizing that anger because you realize that thing was head height. It would have sliced my face open. Mm. That person was helpful even though they were a dick. (laughs) So why have I got a problem? And that's because the sense of identity, self, agency is so deeply important to how we make peace with who we are and how we function in the world, that if that is even by well intentions diminished, we have to work out how to make peace with that and we have to work out how to help people to understand to leave people's agency intact. They can be helpful but still leave agency intact. So the simple thing, audience, you see me out in the world and there's a freaking dangerous obstacle. Come and say, hi, David, Uh, there's something scary in front of you. It's this. Would you like some help? Let me say yes. Let me then explain how we go around the obstacle. I need to take your arm. Give me your right arm. Let me work out how to get us started so that you feel helpful and I still feel like my agency is intact. You've also mentioned that we should you know, offer help when we can. Do you, do you think that is a form of treating you differently? Do you think that there is... Would you, would you like people not necessarily to define you, define you by your blindness, but keep it as a consideration? I'm more than happy for people to keep it as a consideration because mm. blindness does make me different. Mm. Yeah, the reality is we're a hyper-evolved monkey. Monkeys live in troops. Mm -hmm. Monkeys look for sameness. Humans are more sophisticated, but humans look for sameness. Groups of friends reflect each other's behavior, reflect each other's tastes, reflect each other's patterns of what to wear, what to eat, where to go. Using a cane and being blind makes me physically different. There's no point skirting around or pretending it doesn't. Mm. But again, what kind of different? Physically different. Able to do physical things differently. That's the difference. Mm, mm. So as long as that's all it's seen with and that's how people engage with it, no problems. Mm. I've got no problem with that. And I wouldn't have much time for a blind person that had problems with that because do you want to get on with living and succeeding? Mm. Or do you want to be angry about how the world perceives you? Mm. I'd rather set an example that I have pride in and see value in and see how people respond to that than demand from them that they treat me in a particular way when I'm being petulant and difficult to them. Again, how can you ask for good behavior from other people when you're not showing it? Mm. It appears as if, you know, a lot of perhaps your perspectives are either defined by or come as a result of um, your life experience or that the way that you've managed to live your life so far has also then been maybe in a, a circular way has then change because of uh, the influences you've had so like the books and things you've read so have you kind of always had these perspectives you know from a love of reading or have you changed over time because you've with the technology changing you've managed to read more okay technology has just played this incredibly useful role starting first with you know how many eight or nine year olds have you ever met who love radio national (laughs) yeah none 
right? Mm. When books weren't available, Radio National was. Mm. I might not have understood half of it, but it was stuff about the world. Mm. You know, Sunday afternoon on the ABC in the 1990s, where from 1pm to 5pm was four hours of arts programming. I wouldn't even talk to people during those four hours. <laughs> and ask them not to talk to you, yeah, I'm sure. That, that was just mm. absorb stuff about the world. Mm. You know, documentaries on SBS and ABC, who cares about other channels? <laughs> There's stuff to learn. And it was the only way I could learn. So, like I said earlier, when the technology came along where I could scan books, that was amazing. Mm. Then when PDFs became accessible, that was amazing. Then when Kindle became blind accessible, wow. You know, for me, probably the most joy came out of audiobooks. I will probably be a subscriber to Audible. I can't imagine... You know, ever stopping in the rest of my life. Mm. Audible is just amazing. You know, to have amazing books read by humans so you're getting the nuances of a human voice reading it to you. Mm. And again, I am so much I listen and learn rather than read and learn. So to me, having a human who's engaged and interesting reading, engaging and interesting things is probably part of the reason that stuff sticks so deeply. Mm. You know, I, th- I think the device that made an iPod classic accessible the iTel from memory came along late 2006, early 2007. Mm. That's when I got Audible and I'd say I must be at the point now of having at least 1,400 audiobooks. Wow. You know, at any given moment, my iPhone's got at least 200 audiobooks on it and at the moment I think about 300 Kindle books mm. and I just alternate audiobooks as I need them so I'm not using up too much of the memory. Mm. So I'm permanently walking around with a library of at least 500 books. So to me, I've had to learn how to slow down and absorb less. That it is okay to just, you know, plonk in front of my iPhone, you know, open up the Netflix app and listen to something like the new series of Star Trek Discovery with audio description going, which turns it into a radio play Mm. by having a wonderful voice in the background describe everything that's going on. So... In the same way I love Audible and can't imagine ever not subscribing, I love the fact that Netflix, with their own productions, spend the money and the time to get a good actor to fill in all the visual gaps in an additional audio track. It's fantastic. Do they do that much in the cinemas? Like, do you still find joy in, say, going to, this is the cited uh, language coming out, but going and watching movies or seeing shows? Sadly, I find less and less Mm. because as Netflix have got better and better at putting audio description in, I have less and less tolerance for having to make a full perspective out of limited information in a movie. So mm. if it's something incredibly uh, dialogue-driven, like the current movie The Favourite, awesome. And you're listening to Emma Stone do that amazing kind of not-period accent, but this amazing kind of London <laughs> trader crossed with Bambi kind of accent is just awesome. <laughs> She should never, ever talk in her California bubblegum voice again. Mm. The London voice is just way too cool. I want them to sample it so I can make it my iPhone voice. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Siri done by uh, Emma Stone, Stone. Doing her English, the favourite voice. Yes, nice. That would be cool. <laughs> so I find I'm less tolerant of mediums that don't provide me a way in because more and more mediums provide me a way to get maximum output out of the experience. So I used to be far more tolerant of theatre than I am now. I found the fact that in a theatre, the voice has to be projected to be heard in the back row and the the gestures have to be big to be seen means to me 
theater acne is constantly overacting mm. and it just annoys me i would actually rather film because at least they used the one take that was right and all right a lot of it might be a facial expression there's not enough words but i would rather those words being delivered very well plus audio description there's a big push globally now to get audio description in all you know mainstream release movies and that will be fantastic if it happens mm. uh, it looks like how it'll work in the long run is a blind person just goes in the cinema opens up the app you know picks which movie in the app it will listen on the microphone for a minute to sync up and then from then on it will know when to read all the audio description in relation to the rest of the movie mm. i'm like please <laughs> that would be so cool <laughs> you know as a huge blade runner fan when the last Blade Runner movie came up, I was so excited. And Blade Runner's gone from being philosophical and idea-driven and dialogue-driven yeah. to being a piece of junk about, you know, how cool it can look. Yes. And and the sound, the, you know... It was definitely loud in the cinema. It was awful. I, I love sound design and uh, one of my favourite films uh, is, is Wall-E, which is... Uh, had the sound design by Ben Burt, who is probably the father of modern sound design. So he did Star Wars, for instance. Oh, wow. So really amazing sound design. Yes. And I can't think of anything worse, perhaps, for a blind person to be to try and uh, you know consume that film because no, there's no dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the emotion that you get from the film is all about the way that they use sound, but none of it is dialogue. Well, again, everyone who loves Mr. Bean... <laughs> Oh, I hate absolutely. Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean's a dick. <laughs> Mr. Bean should just talk. Sean the sheep. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. Wow. Mm. So <laughs> in my wonderful moment of realising the importance of sound design, mm. two moments, you know, the 1980s, early 90s TV series Miami Vice, mm-hmm. there's a wonderful moment in it where the central character, you know, Crockett, who's meant to be a cop, has had amnesia, become Burnett, the drug dealer that he plays undercover, and has become Burnett. <laughs> And the baddies have realized he's actually an undercover cop, even though he doesn't remember. Mm. And sitting in a, a car, you hear the bad guy cock a revolver as he's about to shoot mm. Crockett slash Burnett in the head. And you just hear Don Johnson say, my brain can't be too bad. I remember what it sounds like when you cock a thirty-eight, And then you hear the handgun go off, his handgun go off, putting a round through the guy's head and then out through the window. But again, from a blind perspective, I heard the gun being cocked and knew what was coming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, ha ha. <laughs> and there's a, a wonderful movie, uh, De Niro movie called 15 Minutes, massively underwatched, made by John Hertzfeld. I think probably as good a movie as Pulp Fiction. Mm. Uh, and there's a scene where the two Russian mobsters are beating De Niro to death with frying pans. And for sighted people, that is highly confronting. Mm. But the two Russian mobsters are having this wonderful conversation about how they're going to get their 15 minutes of fame and what that really means it's this incredibly deep dark absurdist philosophical movement in an otherwise confronting movie Mm. and i remember going to the cinema with a friend when it first came out and i just started laughing hysterically in this scene (laughs) and she turned around to me and said david you are terrifying everyone in here (laughs) because they're freaking out and you're just laughing and you're not you know, you're not flinching she goes when this ends don't unfold your cane just put it under your coat and grab my arm 
you know, and we'll walk out and if people don't work it out, I want to see how freaked out they are. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, most people in the cinema headed for the other staircase to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And I've always loved that moment because, again, yeah, the visuals must have been incredibly confronting. Mm. But the dialogue in that four or five minutes of the movie is just spectacular. So there have been some weird moments where sound is done so well that now more often it seems to me that sound is done only for the sake of the spectacle. Mm. Don't care. Bored now. Yeah. Give me Netflix with audio description or a good audio book or even a Kindle book where it's the synthetic book on my phone reading it to me. Mm. Now, the synthetic voice is not that spectacular, but it's better than not reading the book. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm someone who has actually made radio plays. I really love the idea of sound design and just being taken to a place where you you can imagine yourself in in a place and maybe perhaps because there it is an ambient sense that it is yeah. more e- it is easier to take in an entire landscape than it is for you know visuals let's say because you end up it's kind of unidirectional as opposed to omnidirectional absolutely um the audiobook version of the famous frank herbert novel june mm. at the start I'd say they must have buried a microphone on the side of a sand hill and listened to the sound of the sand gradually hitting and overwhelming the microphone mm. until it was buried, particularly through either outstanding British stereo or good headphones. Mm-hmm. That open in 30 seconds already has you in the zone mm. to listen to amazing science fiction. You're already there. It just works so brilliantly. Mm. Now, uh, something listeners you may have seen because it's got a bit of coverage. There's sort of a thing that blind people are trying to do called echolocation where people will click you know, their tongue to the top of their mouth or have a clicker in their hand or tap their cane on a hard surface and listen to the reflections off of sound, off of surfaces. And you know, there's people who are so good at it, they can navigate by it. That's incredible. I'm slack. Well, yeah. no, I'm not slack. I started trying to do it in my 30s, which means... I've got good enough to use it to find a doorway in a wall by listening to where the gap is. I can use it a bit out in the world to go, where's the corner of the building? Well, the sound just changed because the sound is now going around the corner rather than bouncing off the wall. Wow. But I will also be doing something like, oh, okay, this is a good way to put sound, smell, texture into how I move around and navigate. So to get to the studio where we're recording here, yeah. I'll get off the 98A bus in front of the town hall on King William Street. And as I step forward, because the bus shelter will be to my left, sound and wind are being blocked by the bus shelter. The minute I clear the bus shelter, I will get sound hitting me along the footpath and just in the world, and the wind will hit me again, which means I'm past the bus shelter. I can now turn 90 degrees to the left. Mm. The surface along King William is very smooth with the cane and under my shoes, when you get to the little road halfway to Perry Street, that's rough textured. That means I'm halfway. Mm. When I get to the corner of King William and Perry, suddenly the sound will change because the town hall isn't there, the road's there. Mm. So the sound opens up and the wind will hit me because it's blowing directly along the side of the town hall. Mm. Time to turn 90 degrees to the right. Now time to take 150 steps, by the end of which there'll be a garden bed on my right and the cane will hit whatever's in the garden bed. Mm-hmm. Five steps in front of that is the edge of the building we're in for the recording, mm-hmm. and on the edge of that is pizza e mozzarella, which at this time of day is just starting to get the wood oven warm. Yum. So there is a wonderful smell, as we know, <laughs> of what's going to come out of there later. Mm. 
20 steps after that are the set of steps into the building. Mm. Now, to walk down to where we record, it's a carpet corridor. If I have to think about where to turn, well, that's just boring, too much concentration, it's easier to go 10 steps further until it turns from carpet into a hard surface. Mm. So it's faster to walk to the hard surface, backtrack, and then turn down the corridor to the studio. Mm. So everything about that is a combination of using the cane, smell, sound, wind, ambient sense, Mm. memory, counting. And the bit that is kind of instinctive in all that is getting the cane to be in front of my next step accurately at a width just slightly wider than my shoulders so it finds obstacles at ground level. Mm. So that's that's the thing of navigating. The first few times we were here at the studio, I got Tim to meet me out the front on Perry Street because I hadn't yet worked out how I was going to decide exactly where Mm. the doorway is. So we spent the time and again, there's the great thing of your approach to the world. So, okay, David, how do we do this? Uh, Okay, well, the garden bed, that's reliable, tick. The wall's reliable, tick. How many steps is it? Oh, 20. Awesome. Problem solved. Yeah. But I was just spending that minute to do that, doing it in the way I needed to do to get it to work. Mm. One thing I want to finish up with asking you, and I'm hoping you have a funny answer, (laughs) is what funny things do you notice vision people say and do perhaps in interactions with you or things you can overhear um it's not so much funny Mm. but hearing people stop dead there's a blind person working by i don't (laughs) want to get in their way and they just stop and it's like the worst thing they could possibly do yeah because now i don't know where they are (laughs) dumb dumbs keep talking (laughs) or there's a bunch of kids walking towards me engaging with each other Mm. And they're paying no attention because we're a group of teenagers. Other people get out of our way. Mm. And the next thing I've clobbered one in an ankle with my cane mm. and I've used my sh- you know, fairly sizable shoulder mm. to level the next one. Mm. And suddenly they're all silent and one of them thinks about being rude and you hear him nearly light up, the voice just starts. And then they think how they're going to look if they ever go at a blind person. Yeah, I'm like, Dick, get out of the way. <laughs> you can, I can't. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's a funny thing. I, I want to add... A strange thing because mm. I think it's a really interesting strange thing. It's a question of perception. Mm. In all my years of teaching now, I have found that more often than not, it's girls in the class who work particularly hard in my classes. Yeah. And the number of them who've told me at the end of the semester, thank you, David, it was lovely to just be the person I am and be assessed on what I say and what I write. Mm to not feel there's any assessment on the basis of appearance. You know, one of the students who said that to me, she'd been offered a $100,000 contract at 16 to not sign with another modelling agency until she finished year 12. Whoa. So she was used to being judged by appearance every day of her life. And to be not judged means at the end of the semester, you know, she got me a huge block of Hague's, a bottle of Irish whiskey, and had to give me a huge hug and say thank you because mm. it had changed how she perceived herself. So I like the fact me being blind lets people be what they say and what they do not what they look like and i think it probably has less impact for men than it does for women but i've certainly seen it's beneficial for young women to be treated by a white male as if they're just a person and it makes me sad at some level that that must be rare Mm. well i think 
that's possibly an interesting note to end on, um, something that we can po- probably give it a lot of thought to, maybe something we can talk about in another episode perhaps. Well, I think it's important to say, mm. you know, listeners, if you've got questions we haven't addressed, I don't mind answering them because my thought is Definitely. answering questions about being blind helps people be less afraid to interact with blind people, to interact with physical disability generally. Mm. And that's a really good thing. So if we get another set of seven or eight questions, we can do another episode, you know, in a few months' time and fill in any gaps that we didn't talk about. Mm. I don't know to what extent being blind has shaped who I am, but it would be stupid to say it hasn't shaped me. Mm. I can't quantify it, but it's definitely the case that being blind has made me think and act and function in different ways than I otherwise would have chosen. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Right, well, thank you for being so open about this, David. It's been uh, enlightening and, and entertaining. Thank you for good questions. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you around.